Welcome everybody to the Forward Together podcast. This is a podcast of Hollywell Trust that's looking at the big issues for Northern Ireland and creative ways to address them. My name is Jared Dean. I work for Hollywell Trust. With me today, as always, is Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm as well as ever, Gerald. Good stuff. So, Paul, I think we're going to have a couple of paired conversations, if you like, over the next couple of episodes here. And the first is with Professor Fred Freundlich, and I'm delighted with myself for saying that, from uh, Mondragon University. Can you tell us, Paul, about why you interviewed uh, Fred and why the Mondragon story is an important one that we need to learn from? Yeah, Mondragon is an international example of best practice in terms of cooperative development. And I probably ought to declare a personal interest here, which is if you go back into the 1980s for, for eight years, I was in fact a cooperative development worker before I, I moved over here. So I have a background in, in, in co-ops. Mm-hmm. And Mondragon is a network of a, a vast number, 150 or so different cooperatives that are, are networked together it's got 83,000 people working there. And the important thing, Gerard, is that it came out of the, the poverty, the deprivation, uh, the institutional neglect of the Basque country in Spain. And it was led by a priest who felt that uh, action had to be taken to enable to support people, have development programs that created jobs that actually people led the way at a time when under Franco, when he was the dictator in Spain, uh, the, the, the national government, uh, people in Basque country felt oppressed by him and ignored by him in terms of economic activity. Yeah, it was kind of a, we need to do for ourselves because nobody else is going to do for us. And, and it's really interesting that all these cooperatives work across a broad range. So it's like there's four main areas that they work on. I, I thought that was really really interesting you know it's like manufacturing finance retail and knowledge so universities and stuff like that as well absolutely and and these are as you say these are not small businesses i mean the the refrigeration business in in mondragon is one of the largest in the world for example Uh, and they you know are engaged in some really heavy manufacturing businesses and and they've inspired people around the world to try to copy them the big question is the extent to which you can copy them. Um, perhaps the specific circumstances of the Basque region don't apply elsewhere, but surely there are lots of things we can learn from the example there, not least the fact that it survived so long. Yeah, okay. Well, let's hear the conversation that you had with Fred now. Professor Fred Freundlich, thank you very much indeed for, for, for agreeing to do this. Uh, you are a professor at Mondragon University. Uh, most people listening to this will know very little about Mondragon. Um, so would you like to say a few words about how the, the structure of the, the, the co-op community Mondragon in the Basque country of Spain came about? Sure. Um, there is some history of uh, cooperative enterprise in the Basque country dating back to the late 19th century and uh, early 20th century industrialization. Most of it was consumer cooperatives where the, or user cooperatives, but there was one well-known uh, worker cooperative. The company was owned by the people who worked in it. But Mondelon really came about um, only loosely related to the cooperative uh, history of the Basque country. Uh, the, the Spanish Civil War, 
1936 to 39, left the place devastated. Um, it was occupied enemy territory. They had sided against Franco during the Civil War. Franco won, established a dictatorship. So in the Basque country and in the town of Mondragon itself, Mondragon is, is the name of a town, not only the name of the, I mean, the name of the cooperative group takes its name from the town. <clears throat> it was devastated economically, uh, a poverty, um, I mean, uh, desperate poverty situation, unemployment, um, and a certain amount of political polarization. So uh, most of the most uh, locals had sided with the Republicans against Franco, not, not all had done so. So in this, uh, into this environment comes a Catholic priest, last name, good Basque last name, Arifmendi Arrieta. And he was assigned, uh, he had wanted to do uh, a, a doctoral degree in Belgium, but the Second World War was on, and the, and the church just sent him to Mondragon somewhat randomly. Uh, he arrived here in 1941 uh, in this situation of poverty and political repression, and he immediately saw his uh, first task as uh, education. There were very few educational opportunities for children over 14 of any kind, and so he, uh, he established a, a vocational technical school in 1943. But he also engaged in all kinds of other education uh, informally with young people and adults in the community, because there were no resources available from anywhere. I mean, uh, the world was occupied with other things and the dictatorship was, was uh, saw the Basque country as, as an enemy. So he said, we either do it ourselves or it's not gonna get done. And with that spirit, he organized all kinds of uh, small-scale community projects, as well as sports and cultural activities, music, dance, what have you. And he, he developed in a, in a portion of the, of the population of the town, small town of about 8,000 people at the time, developed in a portion of the town sort of a, a practice of, of self-management. I mean, getting together in groups, with a project in mind and uh, looking for resources and doing the planning and carrying the thing out themselves. And they would, he would organize people into a group to do a particular thing. And then he would say, elect some leaders. I'm very busy. I'll be back in a few months to see how things are going. And people would, would start to do those kinds of projects. So he was, he was, uh, <clears throat> he was promoting formal technical education at the uh, sort of secondary school level, and uh, also sort of community organizing, self-managing community organizing uh, in the broader community. And with a few, I mean, after several years, I mean, he was also something of an intellectual. He was a very interesting mix of, of very practical, goal-oriented and, uh, and visionary intellectual. So he read widely uh, in economics and sociology and philosophy. And decided that um, I mean he he his 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 project was the values project of Catholic social doctrine, solidarity, hard work, um, responsibility, mutuality, and uh, the need. I mean, so, so so other branches of Catholicism 
would, would see the reward of the next life. Whereas Catholic social doctrines, one of its principal tenets was to create God's kingdom on earth. That is to do good works here on earth. So in order to realize these, this, these values, uh, to, to carry out this values project, he came to the conclusion that these values would need to be taken into the economic sphere. E education was very important, community organizing, very important. But if, if these values of solidarity and mutual responsibility were not taken into business, then the broader values project would, would fail or would not be successful. It would be too weakened. Business and work are too important for individuals and for communities uh, for these values not to be applied. I mean, they're too, if these values are not applied there, then they will not, they will not be widespread in the community. So his arrival in 41 started all kinds of educational projects um, and did this educational work for 15 years. And, and uh, it's a long story, but five of his disciples following his, under his guidance and his inspiration, they left the company where they were working in 1955, 56, and they started a the first Monteron cooperative firm, which produced very simple sort of domestic appliances at the time. And one of the things that's very unusual about, and I'll call him Father Jose, so I don't have to uh, show that I can't speak Spanish, um, is the fact that uh, he was unusual for a Catholic priest at that time in not supporting uh, Franco, because the, the Catholic Church mostly was in support of Franco, and he was uh, starting things uh, operating from a different direction. So he, he, was, he was different from the traditions of the Catholic Church in Spain, though not in com completely different from the experience in Ireland, where there is, for example, uh, uh, an Eels uh, cooperative that was established by a Catholic priest here. So there are, there are traditions there. And, and where, where are we today with Mondragon? Because it's been an amazing story over some decades. Yes, well, it's now a massive uh, network, massive, a very large network of uh, highly diverse companies. Started in 1955-56 with these five founders and another 15, 17 people or so in one cooperative company. And it is now 98 cooperative enterprises, another healthy handful, six or eight important organizations, institutions that are organized along cooperative lines, though their, their legal structure is different. It might be a, a mutual or a, or a welfare society. And, and then these companies have subsidiaries. It's one of the most difficult and controversial issues among that are on today, but they have subsidiaries, 150 of them. Uh, that are conventionally owned in, in different parts of the world. And now a hundred, I guess 98 or so co-ops, another half dozen, eight cooperative-like organizations and a hundred and some subsidiaries. 80 plus thousand, maybe 82, 83,000 people employed in total. Um, these companies are divided into four groupings, the 
the, lar the, the, the largest one in terms of number of companies is called the industrial area. I mean, the, <clears throat> I should take a step back. Mondragon is not a one thing. It's a network. It's not a, it's not a loose federation of companies and it's not one unified company. It is an integrated network. So the companies got together at different points along their history and decided to federate themselves, associate themselves in different kinds of ways. And that, that federation is, is very tight. I mean, they collaborate closely in lots of different ways that, that we can talk about. But <clears throat> when they decided to join forces, they divided themselves up into different areas for that, that would make either geographic sense or business sense. Today, the four main areas are manufacturing, or some 80 co-ops or so are in the manufacturing area. They're divided up among a, a dozen or more different divisions. There is a, a finance and allied area, which is a large co-op bank and uh, insurance company. And there's a retail and allied area, which is a, a large chain of, mostly chain of supermarkets, also other kinds of stores and and a few other cooperatives. And the fourth area is uh, knowledge. The university where I work is there and some research and development centers and other knowledge related uh, activities. So uh, 100 and some cooperative companies, 150 or so subsidiaries, 80,000 plus people organized into these four areas. And why would you say that this has been possible in Mondragon and hasn't been replicated, as far as I'm aware, anywhere else? What has, what has been distinctive about the structure, the organization, the drive that has enabled things to happen like this in the Basque country? It's a very good question. And it's, it's been debated a lot. It's very, it's very hard to answer with, with certainty, but... Um, a mixture of things. One is certainly the uh, the vision. I mean, the sort of combined intellectual, philosophical, religious vision of a of a of a charismatic individual, but not charismatic in the traditional sense of of being a moving speaker and uh, organizing masses of people. Charismatic in the sense of being very persuasive, um, commanding. Uh, by his style and commitment, lo intense loyalty among his followers. Um, so a charismatic individual who combined this, these, these broad visions, but with, 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 very with a very practical orientation, how do we get this particular project done tomorrow or over the next week or month? So that kind of unusual leadership was very important. Um, the, the, situation, the situation of economic deprivation, political um, oppression usually, uh, usually generates, generates um, demoralization and division among people. But under the right circumstances, uh, with leadership and committed following and some good ideas, these conditions can actually generate cohesion commitment to a project. So here were this, this group of Basques that had some particular ideas. They saw some, some concrete ways to put them into practice. They started to do that and it was working. And so they had a project that they were committed to that was their own and that was really, uh, really 
closely tied to benefiting the broader community. It wasn't just the, the 12 of us or the, or the 50 of us who have our thing. This is going to be a community, a broader community project. So the, the, these circumstances developed, generated a lot of uh, cohesion and commitment in, in, in the early years. There's also a strong industrial tradition in the Basque country. A lot of trade with, with England going back to the, uh, at least to the late 19th century. So the people here were accustomed to the requirements of industrial life. There was a, a town that had been dominated by a large industrial company since the 1920s. So uh, working in manufacturing, uh, thinking about technology and that kind of thing was not, uh, was not unusual to the people here. It was also in the 1950s, 1960s, uh, a fortunate time to get going in the Spanish economy. Uh, there were all kinds of difficulties to be sure, but this, the, the Spanish economy was, had a lot of pent up savings and was beginning to significantly recover from the post-Civil War era. The rest of the world had finished World War II a decade before or, or longer. Um, but at the same time, the Franco government had, had, had protectionist trade policy. So a company that was committed to, to doing good work, I mean, price, quality, delivery, uh, had to, I mean, it had to compete in a market. So there was a certain market discipline, but did not have to compete with large multinationals that would have, would have easily, would have made quick work of them if the market had been completely open. So there was enough protection for enough years that, that Mondragon manufacturing companies and other companies could, could, could get off the ground, a critical mass could be established. By the time the Spanish economy started opening up significantly, Mondragon was established enough to be able to, to, be able to compete. But I think that the, 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 uh, the magic sauce, it's not, it's not magic is the wrong word to use, but this, this, the most important contribution, social innovation, that Mondragon, I think, has contributed is this idea of a network. And what has made it a, what made it a success, even beginning in the earliest years, and what has, what has uh, made it a significant success over the last 50 years is this notion of collaborating among themselves. So you have lots of different companies doing many different things, but they decided that we're going to we're going to work together, right? We're going to we're going to join forces to do things that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So you can have a successful company of 100 people or 500 people, but that's not going to provide you with finance. I mean, if you're successful, you could grow out of your own earnings, but it, you won't be able to help others start new companies. You won't be able to provide yourselves with particular, with health insurance if the public system isn't, isn't ready to do that. There are all kinds of things, all kinds of needs that the companies themselves and, and, the, and the workers and their families had that uh, were not being provided for well by the market. So they said, well, if we get together and we pool our resources, we can create a bank. We can create a cooperative venture capital organization. We can create a, a cooperative social security organization to pay for our retirement and healthcare. We can create research and development organizations, uh, ongoing adult education. So <clears throat> the co-ops 
the mo this most I think this most important factor was the notion which started with the which started with the priest and it was it was his idea I mean there were federation federations had existed in the past in the cooperative movement uh, who knows exactly where he got the idea but uh, this notion of being a very tightly integrated federation and working together in different ways was I think really the, the, the biggest contribution and it happens in, in sort of two different ways. One is the things that I mentioned, institutions and policies in common, all the co-ops contribute and all the co-ops benefit. So you create a bank for yourself, a social security organization, venture capital, research, all kinds of different institutions that you have all in common. But then you divide yourself up into groups and the, the, second, uh, the second way this, this Intercooperation happens is through business to business uh, collaboration. So co-op A gets together with co-op B and they do a project together because co-op A has, has a technology and co-op B has a client. So they get together and they say, well, if we work together, we can generate more business or three co-ops together or, or, or seven get together. So this first, the first kind of collaboration is all the co-ops together creating institutions. The second kind is, well, if we obligate ourselves to meet once a month to talk about how we can collaborate, we'll find ways to create new businesses, generate more, to generate more jobs, to innovate in different ways. So lots of different kinds of activities have been also been created in, in this second kind of collaboration. Whereas we're in a network, so we're, we're going to look for ways to collaborate. We do that and lots of them work out. And, and how does Mondragon protect the culture? Because uh, it occurs to me that building societies in Britain were very successful. A um, number of them were really quite uh, dynamic, but eventually they got taken over really in a sense by directors that weren't committed to the principles of mutuality and uh, customers that decided that they could convert their mutual ownership into short-term profits. How, how do you prevent that cultural takeover of an organization for, for short-term gain? It's a very good question. question. It's, a, it's, a, it's another one without an easy answer. Um, part of the answer lies in the fact that the, that the companies were started in a small town and there are now companies spread over many different towns in the Basque country, but very few of them in the big cities of the Basque country. Mostly small, small town life, greater cohesion, people know each other more, people are less likely to, less likely to behave in ways that others would see as a betrayal or as selfish or as something like that. Mm. The fact that the priest and the founders were able, were able to generate a lot of cohesion in the early years became a commitment to the project, a willingness to work hard and make financial sacrifices. I mean, senior managers in Mondragon companies make, generally make significantly less than they would make in, con in conventional companies. But the, the reward of contributing to this project, building successful cooperative businesses that have made uh, this this community, this region, well-to-do, proud. That that 
creation of cohesion commitment in the early years has uh, has um, been infectious. It's been sort of carried on generation to generation. That's not to say that there aren't challenges in this regard. There are serious challenges. I mean, the broader culture in the Basque country, in Spain, in the world, uh, leisure-oriented, uh, in more individualistic, um, <clears throat> more competitive, all of those cultural forces, the social media and the uh, media generally and leisure activities and all, 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 the, all the, those forces that are acting around the world also, also have their impact here. And it makes it, it, makes it a real, makes it a difficult, difficult well, challenge. Mondragon tries to address these with very specific education, educational interventions in the co-op, with the specific, I mean, at least 20 years and in some ways further back, but certainly for the last 20 years, it has uh, been aware of this issue. And so there's all kinds of different education and training interventions to strengthen cooperative identity in the co-ops. It's not simple and easy. You don't go through you know, a six week training course and come out, you know, a, a cooperative saint. But if you do these kinds of initiatives often enough and in creative enough ways, different ways, then you have, a, you have an effect. So to what extent are the lessons from Mondragon transferable to other places? I think, I think they're very transferable. I don't think it's simple, but the notion that if we, a, f a few things. First, that sharing ownership of an enterprise is sharing ownership and decision-making information in enterprise is likely to make it more successful. I think that's readily transferable and it's been demonstrated there are all kinds of shared ownership enterprises all over uh, the UK and Europe and North America and other places. So sharing ownership with sort of a genuine interest in uh, a shared, in a shared ownership way of doing things will lead to a more successful organization in almost all cases. I mean, there are lots of exceptions and these companies fail for one, for one reason or another, but, but generally speaking, they are, they tend to be more successful than their conventional counterparts. I think that notion, I mean, it, it, you, you can talk about that notion in a certain way in the Basque country, and it has to be a different way in Ireland and a different way in Brazil and a different way in, in China. But all, I mean, human cultures around the world have a way of, of talking about and understanding mutuality, um, solidarity, uh, <clears throat> shared ownership, collaboration, there are different ways to talk about and learn about, teach each other these things. So I think, it, I think it's applicable just about anywhere. The next idea is collaboration among enterprises. Now enterprises, lots, there are lots of kinds of ways enterprises get together and joint ventures and alliances and other things. Integrating to the level uh, at which Mondragon enterprises are, are, are integrated is more of a challenge. It's much less common. But I think, I think it's not, it's certainly not impossible. 
we work with different groups, there are different groups in different parts of the world who are thinking about specifically how, how they can do this in Canada and in Mexico and in other places. They're now at the point of, we need to take this next step toward what, toward this collaboration, what Mondragon, what Mondragon calls inter-cooperation, where co-ops cooperate among themselves in these, in these two ways, to create institutions in common, policies in common, and to look for business synergies among themselves. <clears throat> it's not, it just doesn't seem like it should be impossible uh, in either legally, culturally, financially, anywhere, anywhere, anywhere in, in the world. I mean, co-ops, other, other kinds of companies, I mean, it will have to start small in their inter-cooperation uh, initiatives. Fine. I mean, <laughs> it's taken Mondragon 50, 60, 70 years to get to where it is today. Of course, it's going to start small. But to, to begin to look for partners, I'm a cooperative business or a shared ownership business. How can I work with another one nearby or with the internet? Yeah, not so nearby these days. How can I work with another one? How can I persuade another one to work with me, arrive at specific and concrete legal uh, commitments to work together, to share resources in certain ways um, in order to, to strengthen our companies and to strengthen this kind, this kind of a business. Now, the, the, so it's also important to say that, the, that while the, the network is highly integrated, the individual co-ops are highly autonomous. I mean, they, they do a lot of strategic thinking together and they, they give up some resources for common purposes, like for the veteran capital fund or for a rescue fund if a certain co-op isn't doing well or for other things. But in their operations, day to day, week to week, they are 99.5% autonomous. So that balance between integration and autonomy is, is, also, is also very important. It's, it's not an, uh, uh, a network of 100 organizations that are controlled by a handful of people at the, at, the, at, the, at the center. But I guess having it, your own collective banking function must be incredibly important for the development of Mondragon over the years. It was, absolutely. Critically important in, in the first generation and has continued to be important, though the nature of banking has, has changed a lot over the years. And what the bank was able to do in the early years a uh, conventional bank wouldn't, or a credit union wouldn't do today, which is why Mondragon, know, 20 years ago or so, or more, created a venture capital fund because most conventional banks can't do very much venture capital lending. It's just too risky. That makes sense, right? Um, a certain amount of lending with certain amount of risk. I mean, they have a portfolio of loans, and some are less risky and some are more risky, but you need to be able to create a financial institution that can finance relatively risky startup enterprises. So the, the bank served that purpose in the early years. It was allowed to, and it was, success, it was quite successful at doing that. So there were bumps in the road to be sure, but it was generally successful being able to do that. But as banking regulation changed and Spain became more integrated into the, into the European common market and what have you and then the European Union, it became more difficult for banks to do startup lending. So they created a fund 
to do precisely that, precisely that understanding that these are going to be riskier loans and investments. But that's a function that's absolutely necessary if we're going to, if we're going to grow, if we're going to go into, into new sectors and that kind of thing. But finance, absolutely crucial, absolutely. And one of the things that people in Derry will be particularly interested in is the concept of your own organization, the Mondragon University, and how a university comes out of a business empire, a cooperative business empire, its role, and how it's financed. Mm -hmm. It's really actually almost the other way, almost the other way around. It, the priests started with education, and it was at the level of vocational technical secondary school in the early years, but it evolved, and out of those schools grew university level uh, educational institutions. And education has always been a central piece of this, which is another, another lesson, I think, that uh, Mondragon has to offer people thinking about these kinds of initiatives in other, in other places. Education in, in the formal sense, classes and degree programs, but also training, but also uh, informal education out in the community about why this is important, why we do things this way. But in any case, it's the, the, the university grew out of uh, a series of technical schools that the, that the priest had created. And the need for qualified staff never went away. It has, always, has, only, has only increased. So Mondragon University, so some, some ed higher education institutions grew out of the technical schools. And they joined together in 1997 create Mondragon University and in engineering and business in teacher education and humanities and also in, culin in, in culinary arts it's another another story but in any case the demand for qualified staff who are interested in working in the co-ops has has never uh, has never has never disappeared I mean it's, it's, it will always be there as long as the as long as the enterprises are here and the enterprises know how important it is to, that the curriculum, that the content of what people learn and the way they learn it will be important to them when they hire graduates. So they should be participating with the university in, in discussing these things. Um, the faculty know, the, the, the professors and the staff know that the closer the relationship with the cooperatives, the stronger the university is going to be and the stronger the, the co-ops are going to be. So there's this mutual understanding of of, of the importance of, of the relationship. It's paid for um, in different ways. I mean, it's a private university, it's private nonprofit um, university, but it's open to the public. As a private university, it charges tuition. It's, you know, depending on whom you're comparing it to, it's, you know, probably half the tuition of, uh, 7,000 some euros, it depends on the degree program per year is, is expensive compared to the public universities, but it's uh, roughly half as expensive as other, as other private universities uh, in, in Spain and much less expensive than private universities in, in other places. So about 40% of our revenue comes from tuition um, that students and their families pay a policy is that no, no student should have to be turned away as a result of not being able to pay. There's significant 
financial assistance programs. The rest of the revenue, much of the rest of the revenue comes from the university's applied work. So the university is uh, very closely related to the co-op, the cooperative enterprises, but also enterprises generally. Students are obligated, and that's one of the reasons they come here, is they have a lot of exposure to the real, real life activity in real enterprises during their studies. In particular, practicum periods, but also doing different kinds of courses. In some courses, um, they spend 30% of their time in enterprises. If it's a marketing course or if it's a finance course or whatever it might be, or, or mechanical engineering, they do two or three days a week at the university and two or three days a week in an enterprise working on the particular, the particular uh, subject that's of interest at the time. Um, so the university is very closely related to the enterprises and does projects for them frequently in collaboration with students. So, uh, so a, uh, a, a cooperative business will have a particular strategy issue or want to do market research or want to reorganize a unit. It will, it will um, come to the university, to one department or another, or they, or they want to do a cooperative identity strengthening intervention. It's one of the things in, that, that we work on in, in, in my unit here. Right? They will say, we want to do this, and there'll be a negotiation, uh, what kind of work and negotiation and sort of co-creation process, what, what needs to be done, and how much it will cost. And so, and so part of our, part of our um, university is paid for by charging companies to do these projects. And then there are government grants, some competitive, some not competitive, that uh, all universities uh, go after as well. But what's really important to understand is that the function of the university is really important for the viability and sustainability of the cooperative enterprises. I would certainly say so. I mean, it's, it's still relatively small. 5,000 or so students for uh, 9,800 cooperative enterprises whose demand for uh, new staff is, is significant, so they draw from other universities as you know other universities as well. Um, so we sort of have been growing slowly in a very measured pace, so as not to get in trouble. Um, but it it absolutely is an integral part of. I mean, they're they're integral. They're 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 uh, crucial to each other. The health of the enterprises depends in part on the health of the university and vice versa. Thank you very much, Fred. That's been really interesting and, uh, and informative. Thank you very much indeed. Well, a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you, bye. Okay, really interesting and insightful conversation there with Fred. Uh, looking at the 80 year history of Mondragon, Paul, um, I was struck by the importance of networking and the fact that there's so much collaboration, no matter what industry you're working in, everybody's working along with one another. Yeah, and, and they, they survived difficult times. They, they had a lot of internal struggles during the, the, 
the recession 2008 2009 uh, they had to deal with the question about how they supported some of the businesses that couldn't survive mm -hmm. uh, the extent to which they could create new networks of uh, mutual uh, help and assistance uh, but they, they got through it um, and yeah uh, it is that connection between each other and I think the big question is whether other regions can share that strong sense of mutual identity in the same way that the Basque country does. Yeah, it, you'd think that particularly the Northwest, it's like our, this podcast goes out everywhere, but we're based in Derry in the Northwest of Northern Ireland. I'm not saying we feel exactly the same as the people in the Basque country do, but we've had similar lack of investment, we've had similar we have to do this for ourselves type of approach. So I think we've a lot to learn. And one of the things that's really relevant is the conversation that I had around the university, particularly given the conversation that, that we're having in the city at the minute. Yeah, and, and I know perfectly well that people in Derry have looked at the Mondragon University example uh, and have asked themselves whether that is something that could be applied here. Um, the size of the university there is not of the same scale that people have looked at for, for 50, more than 50 years for Derry. Mm. Um, but actually, you know, it may well be that the final outcome we have is not one university, but a few university type activities. So you have McGee, you have the Northwest Regional College, and perhaps you have something else that's smaller alongside those. Yeah, well, I suppose the real difference with the Mondragon University is they're creating people to work in the region and the cooperatives that are based in the region. So it's just about 100% of the people that go to university stay in the region, whereas ours might be slightly different. You know, there's that people who come here to learn and then go home or whatever it is. We want people to stay here. That That's going to be what the key is, and that's what they have done. Well, I, I, all universities, typically the students continue to live in the area after they've graduated. But, but uh, I think what is particularly significant about Mondragon is the connection between the university, the knowledge and research of the university and the support for the local businesses. It's that connectivity. And as you say, it's not just about the network between the businesses, but the networking between the businesses, what they learn and the university in support of them. Yep. Well, dead on. Um, thanks to Fred for taking the time uh, to have the conversation with me. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but I want to go to the, the region now to do a wee bit of learning, a wee bit of fact-finding and sample some of that food around San Sebastian, things like that as well. That'd be pretty good. So, Paul, thank you for meeting with Fred. Thanks to everybody who's helped out uh, there to edit this podcast and pull it together. Thanks to the Community Relations Council for funding it. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.